Have you ever gotten a letter from the HOA before? Have you ever gotten a letter from the HOA, the Homeowners Association? Uh, in Wisconsin, there's not a ton of homeowners associations. So maybe you guys don't even know what an HOA is. But if you lived in Colorado, uh, there are tons of HOAs. And so that was something new for me as Aaron and I bought a home in Colorado, uh, being part of an HOA. And one day we got this letter from the HOA. And it said, you cannot have an air conditioning unit in your window. Needless to say, I was a little perturbed, okay? We bought this house. This is our house. And I can do with the house what I want to do with the house. And if I want an air conditioning unit in the window, I can put an air conditioning unit in the window. Erin, you know, calmed me down through all my perturbed attitude of reading the letter. But basically, she said, that's not the way it works with an HOA, honey, okay? You signed a contract, along with a million others' forms when you do closing at a house that I didn't remember, that said that you are going to be in this covenant relationship with all of these neighbors. And part of what these neighbors have said is, you can't have a unit in your window. <sighs> Frustrating, they used to say. Hopefully you guys don't have to deal with these things. And HOAs, how many HOAs, anybody in an HOA here? One, one person over there. There's, that's what I thought, Wisconsin. That's kind of how it works. That's why we moved back, right? No more HOAs. The thing is, this attitude that I had towards the HOA, I think is a similar attitude that Israel had towards the relationship in their covenant with God. Who is this person? Who is this God? Who is this being that is demanding stuff of us. And so today, we're not going to see a letter from an HOA, but we're going to see a letter from God. A check-in that says, this relationship, this covenant is not going well. The question is, how are we going to respond to this letter from God today? Let's find out together, shall we? Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It's printed in your worship guide. If you have a Bible, that's the Bible's over there. It's on page 627 and 628. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land 
and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law do not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The word of the Lord. Are you just joining us? We are starting the book of Jeremiah. We were in chapter one this week. It'll take us all the way until 2019. And the book of Jeremiah is written by Jeremiah, a prophet. And a prophet is one that speaks a message from the Lord. Now, there are lots of prophets at Israel, but really what decided a good prophet, a true prophet, is saying a message that people might not want to hear. That's really how you know if a message is from God or not, right? If we just said, oh, I have a message from God, but it just says what we want or what we desire or what we think, then you have to think it's probably not from God. It's just probably from ourselves. You see, Jeremiah speaks a hard message. One that does not benefit him, as we see through this book, The Weeping Prophet, how much he goes through in ridicule and suffering because of the message that he speaks. Really, the book of Jeremiah is a long book. It's called one of the major prophets. And it's written over 40 years of Jeremiah's collections of what the Lord has given him. And it's written over three different kings over Judah which is the southern part of Israel. And he writes this in a very turbulent time. It's a time of the rise and fall of nations. From the south in Egypt to the north, Assyria and Babylon. Here these nations are fighting amongst each other. And of course, Israel is caught right in between. And these kings of Judah that are going through this turbulent time of being in the middle of all these battles and nations rising. They are doing political moves, moves and counter moves. What should I do to survive? What should I do for the nation so that we can make it? That is what the kings of Judah are thinking. And then comes along Jeremiah, who speaks to the kings, who speaks to the people, who speaks to the leaders and he says, kings don't decide ultimate things on this world. No, the king of kings does. God does. And you see, Israel responds. Judah responds continuously. Jeremiah, what are you talking about? Egypt reigns. Assyria reigns. Babylon reigns. 
Those are the nations we should listen to. Why should we listen to you? Why should we listen to the Lord? You see, that's the mentality that Jeremiah is speaking to. The mentality of Judah at this time. The law, which is, you know, the Torah, probably specifically talking about the book of Deuteronomy, has been forgotten for 75 years. In chapter 2 of this book of Jeremiah, is probably talking before the, reform, the reforms of Josiah. And what has happened as the law has been forgotten for 75 years is the gods of Assyria are being worshipped in the temple. Baal and Asherah. There's prostitution happening in Israel's temple. The cult of Moloch has taken over parts of Israel. And there's actually human sacrifice done among the Jews because these outside gods, these outside nations are telling them what they should do. And they are appeasing them and trying to live by their laws and by their gods. Enter in an 18-year-old, Jeremiah, speaking against a whole nation that is firmly entrenched. Speaking against their foreign gods. Speaking about what they're doing. Here he comes, his three-mile trek. He lived three miles away from Jerusalem, and here God comes, and he says, Go to Jerusalem and speak my words. And here goes this 18-year-old to the heart of the deception in Jerusalem to speak the words of God. See what he says, shall we? Again, verse 2. He's made his trek to Jerusalem, and this is what God says. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. See, the Lord does not start with an HOA letter. He does not cite section 22-A-5B. You have broken these things, and I want to let you know what you've done wrong. No, the Lord does not start with that. Instead, he paints a picture of the relationship between Israel and himself. And what picture does he paint? A picture of a honeymoon. Do you remember how good it was? Even though you were wandering in the wilderness, even though it was difficult, you trusted in me. Even though you had no land, you had no beauty, you trusted in me. And it was a beautiful relationship. You trusted in me and I protected you. What beautiful imagery. God and Israel, the bridegroom and the bride. You can imagine, this would be Aaron maybe speaking to me. Remember when we had no money? Remember when we were just married? And we saved every dollar we could. 
So he'd go to that diner in Clarendon, right outside Washington, D.C. You remember that? We didn't care. We looked at each other and we loved each other. It didn't matter how difficult it was. He was beautiful. You know, one question I ask married couples when we're in counseling and talking and they're struggling. I say to the husband or say to the wife, what made you fall in love with this person? What made you fall in love with this person? It's amazing to hear them tell the stories of those first dates or their wedding day or their honeymoon. And that is what God is doing. He's saying, look back. Look back at how beautiful it was. This relationship we had. Maybe that's a question that I need to ask you, some of you. Do you remember the first days or first weeks or first months of the joy of your salvation? Maybe it was at summer camp that you came to know the Lord and it just radically transformed you. Maybe it was a college ministry that Someone knocked on your door, invited you to a Bible study, and you came to know the Lord. Maybe it was at a really dark time in your life, and you remember the salvation and rescue of God. You might, you might admit, you know, the circumstances back then were a lot harder than they are right now. But I tell you, I had more joy back then, even how hard it was back then. Maybe God is giving you that warning today. Not out of guilt, but he does it out of painting a picture of beauty of the relationship you had. Some of you might not know what I'm talking about. (laughs) What is this to have a relationship with God? I want to speak to you and say, This is the profound picture of what God looks like. He enters into people's lives, wanting relationship with them. Often, over and over again, he uses this Hebrew word that he uses here in verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, the hased, that is the loving devotion, the loyalty back and forth. That is... God. This isn't just a Jesus New Testament phenomenon. No, this is the character of God from the very beginning that he wants to enter into dynamic relationship with us. The God of the universe that created all things, that knew you before you were born, that knows all of your life, all of your decisions, everything that you will decide, everything that is done, he cares about you that much and he wants to enter into relationship with you. That is the God that Jeremiah is talking about. That is the Lord that is speaking that says, I want to know you like a bridegroom knows a bride. As you love your wife, that is how I want to love you. 
That ain't no HOA letter. But God is wondering, what happened? <laughs> what happened to this beautiful covenant? You used to write long love letters, Aaron might say. You used to travel miles without hesitation. Now you don't even want to go get the milk. You used to jump up and do anything I asked you to with no problem. And now when I say, can you put the kids to bed? You go, oh man. What happened to our love? Don't get me wrong. I love my wife. She's not here today because it's her 40th birthday next week. And she's off by herself with her sisters surprised her. So I love my wife. I love her dearly. But God says, I want you to remember that love. What has happened? Well, we see the first things that's happened in verses four through eight. I just want to, I hope you guys are reading Jeremiah along with us. On that trifold is a reading schedule. Maybe you guys have taken the hard task of reading this book this week. I was talking to Phil about it. He's been reading it. And he says, it's not an easy book to read. I totally agree. It's not an easy book to read. But I want to give you some hints, maybe every week, in how you can read the book of Jeremiah. The first hint what you're going to see here today is that Jeremiah uses a lot of rhetorical questions from God. Start to see those, the question marks, and the rhetorical questions that God is asking. So you can see one of them here in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, this rhetorical question, what wrong did your fathers find in me, the Lord, that you went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? You see, God is begging the question. The answer is none. There is no fault in him. He has provided for them time and time again. He has rescued them from Egypt. He has given them a land. He has had others leave the land and deliver them over and over and over again. What fault can they find? None. You see, in the rhetorical questions, this is a way that God shows his love for us. I call this the bedside chat with my parents, or maybe the around the kitchen table chat with my parents. You know how it went. You know you did something wrong. And they would sit me down. And they would say things like, what did we do wrong? (laughs) Have we not provided for you? Have we not cared for you? You know, those rhetorical questions, they're like, oh, yes, I know you love me and all those things. But they're trying to get me to think about what they have done for me. See, God doesn't just give some cease and desist letter on the door. No, he starts to get them to think, what is the problem? What has happened? And he notes two problems. One, you have forgotten me. And two, You have gone after worthless idols. So this is the warning he gives about what's gone on in this covenant relationship. One, you have forgotten me. 
And two, you have gone after worthless idols. Look with me in verse six. This is how bad it has gotten. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt? It has gotten so bad they don't even bring up what God has done. How he has rescued them from all these things. That's not even a thought in their mind about the Lord. Look in verse 8. The priests do not say, where is the Lord? Even the priests don't even acknowledge where God is. They have forgotten him. How bad has it gotten? It's corrupted all of the leaders. The priests, the shepherds, which are probably the political leaders, and the prophets. Again, they don't even ask, where is the Lord? You see this with the scribes here. In verse 8, those who handle the law did not know me. How crazy is that? Those that, you know, write the scriptures, those that maybe read them or whoever it might be, they don't even know the Lord. The idea of know here is the Hebrew yada. It doesn't mean just simply to know things in your head. It's to know things in your heart. It's a personal commitment. It is this strong bond in relationship. You can know the Bible. You can know the catechism. You can know all these things. But do you know the Lord intimately? Are you in relationship with him? A great conviction for our elders of our church or the deacons that are coming in. Do they know the Lord? Are they in relationship with him? I mean, I can know what my wife looks like. I can know her preferences. I can list off all her biography and history and all those things. But do I know her so well that before she comes to bed, that I know that she needs her dehumidifier filled? Do I know her so well that I know that I'm an extrovert and I just thrive being around other people, that my wife needs time alone and that I would give that to her? Do I know her that well? Do we know the Lord? Do we talk to him about our deepest concerns, our deepest problems, what is going on in us? Or do we just forget him? I just hear this over and over again in the Fox Valley. You know, as long as I make good choices, as long as I'm moral, I've got the Christian thing down. Why do I need to acknowledge God? I've gotten what I can from religion. I'm good. I heard this one pastor gave a great illustration about that. Imagine you had a friend and he told you about his single mom. His mom that raised him. And he tells about how his mom worked multiple jobs. How she would rush home after these jobs and work on his homework with him. Take him to sports games, provide for his every need, help him pay through college, get all these things. She did all these things so he would be set up. And then you say to your friend, how's your mom? And he says, I don't know. I don't talk to her. 
you would be aghast. What? She's done all these things for you? She's provided all that, sets you up perfectly, you don't even talk to her? Well, why should I? Because she sacrificed for you. She did so much for you. Of course you would want to be in relationship with her. How much more has the God of the universe done for us? Is our response the same? How far has it gone in your life? That you don't even ask, where is the Lord? Have you recently asked and bothered to ask the creator of the universe about what is happening in your life? That when you have issues that you would come to him and talk with him. That you would actually be in relationship with the one that made you and created you. They forget him. Next, they run to other gods. You can look back how he sets it up in verse 5. He says, and they went after worthlessness and became worthless. Funny, it goes back to that great word of Koheleth in Ecclesiastes, again used by Jeremiah. Hevel, vanity, vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. The same word here, worthlessness, hevel. That is what your idols are. That is what it means to worship Baal or Asherah. They are worthless. And I love it. Jeremiah goes further than Koheleth in Ecclesiastes. He says, they are not just worthlessness, but you in worshiping them have become worthless. How bad is it? I survey all the way to the west, which is Cyprus in verse 10. And I survey all the way to the east, which is Kedar. I survey all of creation. And what do I see? I see that even these people that worship gods that are not gods, that at least they stay allegiant to their gods, but you don't. It's funny. That might be true for us today. In our culture. That people are more allegiant to their idols than we might be allegiant to our very God. People are less likely to give up their drugs or their alcohol or whatever vice or idol they have than for people to give up worshiping our Lord. Look at what's happened in America. I mean, listen, I, I'm not going to be critical, but our culture is leaving the church. And I use statistics as statistics about Wisconsin, the fifth most irreligious state in the United States because people just don't go to church. And then he uses this analogy. Look with me, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is what I call the, maybe the parable of the fortunate farmer. <laughs> I mean, think about in Israel, which was not the most, you know, 
well-watered place, an arid place, that one farmer one day digs and finds what? An aquifer on his land. Living waters that just spring up. How fortunate for this farmer. He doesn't need to get water from anywhere else ever again. It's right there on his land. But what does he do instead? He decides to dig in the dirt and find some rocks, which you can go in Israel and still see these things today. And he finds this rock and he digs and he digs and he digs until he makes a hole under the ground in this rock for a cistern. So when it rains, that this cistern will fill up. If you know much about cisterns in the ancient day, not the cleanest water <laughs> that sits there. It forms algae and it becomes stale. But this is what the farmers would use to water their plants or their sheep or whatever it might be. But how foolish is this? He has a spring of living water, but he stills and digs out a cistern. And how bad is this cistern? It's so bad it's cracked, so the water doesn't even hold. That is how bad it is. And what he is saying is, this is what it's like to worship false gods. You have the living water of God himself. And instead of going to that water that just never ends, that always will plenish, you decide to dig out a cistern with stale water and one that's broken and doesn't even hold water. Good thing none of us do that, right? We're all good here at Emmaus Road, right? Everyone good here? None of you, last week on Sunday night, when Aaron Rodgers went down with that injury, none of you in your heart went, oh man, this fall is going to suck. <laughs> what am I going to do on Sundays now? What am I going to do? The Packers are going to be bad. I love sitting down. I love watching the games. I love going to the games. Now I have to watch this without Aaron Rodgers. You laugh. And I laugh, but I know what's in my heart. I would rather go to broken cisterns, to the Green Bay Packers to find joy in my life than to go to the living stream that will never end. Oh, good thing I'm not a Packer fan. I don't care what analogy you use. I mean, a broken phone. I see how people flip out when their phone doesn't work. It's like the end of the world has come. We were just talking about this with the girls. They were asking girls in their class, what were five things you would take out of your house if your house was on fire? Over and over again, the people in their school said, my phone. I love what Nietzsche says. We have more idols in this world than realities. We've tasted living water, but we go back to cisterns. But what is the sum of the matter? 
You can always look if you're reading for words like this in verse 9. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, a great word. Therefore, taking all this into account, all that I've observed, that you have forgotten me, that you have abandoned to other idols, therefore I do this, I contend with you, declares the Lord. I probably like the NIV translation better. I charge you. This is legal language here. I am bringing this suit against you. This relationship has gone bad. You have gone after other lovers. I'm giving you a certificate of divorce. I'm taking you to court. This relationship has not been what it was supposed to be. This covenant has been broken. I'm bringing suit against you, Israel. Michael James Marin. He grew up with knowledge of God. He went to Yale Law School, graduated top of his class, started working in Wall Street for Lehman Brothers, was a millionaire, had Pablo Picasso paintings. He traveled the world. He climbed Everest. He was a playboy and got any lady he wanted. He bought houses after houses all over the United States. And one day he bought a house and leveraged himself too far in Arizona. And as the financial crisis hit in 2008, he realized he was losing everything. His house was underwater. He said, I know how I'll get out of it. I will put my house on fire. And then I will collect the insurance money from it. So he committed arson in this multi-million dollar home. But they caught him and they brought him to court. And the charges were read against him of arson. And then the verdict was handed out. Guilty. Here this man is that had everything. And right there in the court, as he hears the guilty verdict, he goes, oh man, something happened. Let's all step up and walk outside. If there's that thing to press down, try that. Those doors right there. Yeah, I know, man. Maybe. We'll pull it back down. So, yeah. Just as you say arson, man. Yeah, man, I know. 